Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, I wanted to welcome you back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And today's topic on domestic and intimate partner violence is an important one, but it might be triggering for some listeners. So just want to give you the heads up. My guest today is Dr. Claudia Fenderson, who has served as the director and chair of the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Marist College until her retirement this past year. She has a Bachelor of Science in Physical Therapy from Columbia University, a Master's Degree in Physical Therapy from Long Island University, and an EDD in Child and Youth Studies from Nova Southeastern University. Her career spans more than 45 years, and the majority of her experience has been in the areas of education and neurologic rehabilitation, primarily in infants and preschoolers with developmental delays and disabilities. Dr. Fenderson is a board-certified pediatric clinical specialist, diplomat of the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties. She has presented numerous lectures at the state, national, and international level on topics related to pediatrics, education, health literacy, and domestic violence. She co-authored NeuroNotes, and she has reviewed and contributed to several physical therapy texts. She is a member of the American Physical Therapy Association, including sections in pediatrics, education, research, orthopedics, and women's health. Dr. Fenderson is very active in service to the profession and participates in a medical mission in South America on a yearly basis. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Claudia Fenderson. Hey, Claudia, how are you? I'm doing well, Leah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so glad it's, we're sort of starting into spring. And so it's really kind of a relief. It's been a long winter. So I really appreciate you taking time to have this conversation today. So thanks so much. I'm glad to do it. This is such an important topic. I'm glad to be able to discuss this with you. Well, thanks. Well, I just wanted to you know, start as I always do asking people a little bit about their background. So you are a PhD professor of physical therapy. And how did you go from there to being interested in this topic of domestic violence prevention? Well, when I started my career, um, and I work with adults, mostly, um, you know, uh, a variety of adults, not one specific area, but I often saw women who came in with different types of injuries. Uh, One time it would be for neck pain, another time where they hurt their arm, uh, different types of injuries. And occasionally their description of how an injury occurred didn't coincide with the types of injuries I was seeing. And I didn't know how to address that. But um, in PT education, we weren't taught back in the day to recognize signs of intimate partner violence. But as my career evolved, I found more information about it. And it made me aware that I was likely treating women who were being abused and that I needed to screen for that this and become involved in it. And also, most of my work has been in pediatrics. And when I see children who have been abused, they usually have come from households where domestic violence was occurring. 
So uh, as a PT, we have long-term interactions with our patients. They see us numerous times for each injury, and we develop a trusting relationship. And that also helps us address domestic violence and raise the issue with our patients. I love that there's multiple intersects where we can be really looking out for the well-being of the patients that we treat. And I, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, I don't think a pediatrician would think, well, gosh, the, the physical therapist could pick that up. But, you know, again, you, you're spending time with your patients, probably more time than we might in an office encounter. So I think that's a really interesting, you know, uh, perspective that I wouldn't have thought of before. I think you mentioned about working with women who'd been abused. And I think when we think about intimate partner violence, we think of, you know, a a woman being the victim at the hands of a man, but this doesn't always look like that. I mean, there can be physical abuse, emotional, sexual abuse, financial abuse, and, and stalking. And can, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the misconceptions we have about what domestic violence looks like? Yes, I think it's really important that we don't make assumptions about abusers and victims or survivors of abuse. Um, Anyone can be a victim. Anyone can be a perpetrator. So it can involve a woman abusing a male partner. And that's, like you said, what we hear most about. But it could be a man abusing another man uh, who are in an intimate relationship. It can be anyone of any age, racial or ethnic background, socioeconomic group, sexual orientation, um, anybody could be a victim or an abuser. Um, so that's an important consideration. And you mentioned um, that we most often think about physical abuse, but it's important to understand that that abuse often is part of a controlling behavior. Once the physical abuse occurs, it's often just the threat of abuse that can allow an abuser to have control over the victim. Um, and emotional abuse is part of that. It can take the form of denigration, intimidation, or isolating a person from family or friends. Sometimes just the threat of physical violence is enough to become allow somebody to become submissive. Um, the sexual abuse involves sexual acts when a person has not freely given their permission um, or consent uh, for those acts. And that's important when we talk about people with disabilities who might not be able to verbally consent or abuse, uh, refuse or physically they may not be able to stop the abuse. Um, They're not in the same situation as an able-bodied person. Uh, Financial abuse is also when somebody makes all the financial decisions uh, as a way to control a victim. Uh, Again, controlling is the important word. They can force them to sell possessions. They could require that they ask money, uh, family for money, and they may be able to attempt to restrict a person's access to health care insurance. So if a person is a sole provider of finances for the home, they might control everything and not allow a person to spend money unless they've done things right. They might refuse to allow them to spend money. Again, it's about control. And stalking, some people think it's harmless because a person hasn't done anything except maybe follow somebody. But stalking is something that we really need to pay attention to. When somebody is constantly um, checking on somebody, showing up where they work, but it makes the person be fearful of their own safety. And because of that, all states now have anti-stalking laws because the stalking often escalates to violent situations. So all those types of uh, 
situations are encompassed in domestic violence or intimate partner violence. You talking about it just, you know, it almost makes you feel the fear that that can, you know, instill in a person just the idea that you would lose all of your abilities to, I think the word you used was control, that you would have no control. Um, And Mm -hmm. that must be, that must be really terrifying. Yes. And I think when people use the emotional abuse, when they denigrate somebody and tell them they're not worth anything, and I'm the only one who would ever have you because you're not a good person, the person starts to believe it. The victim uh, feels that that's true. And they allow the abuse. They get into a situation that they can't work themselves out of. Yeah. How common is this, Claudia? It's really hard to measure the true incidence of intimate partner violence because often it's not reported. But they do estimate that about a third of women and almost a third of men have experienced either physical violence or sexual violence or stalking by an intimate partner. And that information is available in the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey. Uh, but they they believe that most victims, less than um, a third of the victims ever seek medical attention for their abuse. Uh, they're in a situation and they feel like uh, if they report it, then the abuse could get worse if they go back in that, to that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've, I've often and, heard that when people try to leave those situations, that they may be at highest risk. Because, I mean, I think as helping professionals, we think, well, we need to help you leave. You know, you need to just get out of it, but not mm-hmm. taking into consideration what that means in terms of the threat level. Right. And men are much more, uh, much less likely to report any form of domestic violence because there's a stigma that, uh, you know, the men should be strong and that they wouldn't let themselves get into a situation. Mm-hmm. And a man can be abused by a woman or by another man. And uh, people in heter- homosexual relationships have to not just reveal that they're in a domestic violence situation, but they have to come out of the closet, so to speak. So they're talking about two things that they have to reveal. And again, men are less likely to to do that. Well, I, again, it's just these sort of things you don't even think about. We're kind of talking about, you know, these primarily probably adults, but witnessed intimate per- um, partner violence is one of the 10 adverse childhood experiences. And why does this affect children so much when they witness, you know, this domestic violence? There are just uh, a lot of things that uh, happen when a child is in a domestic violence family or witnessing it. Um, and it really is a significant public health issue. They uh, estimate that about 15% of children witness intimate partner violence. But that number is probably very low because things aren't reported. But when there's violence in the home and uh, children are hearing arguments, they're seeing destruction of property, um, it can affect their overall development. Infants can have eating and sleeping issues. Um, They're at a higher risk for a physical injury because the violence often then comes from the partner down to children. But preschool children learn to um, that they don't feel safe in their home, so they can have separation and stranger anxieties. They can have regressive behaviors. Uh, insomnia is common in infants, preschoolers, all ages, uh, up to adolescence. Um, school-age children start to blame themselves. They think somehow they're responsible for it. 
they feel guilty that they can't intervene. Uh, and they come in, they might present with somatic complaints like headaches or vague, vague complaints of stomach aches that um, nobody can find a reason for. Uh, they can also have aggressive behaviors. So there's a lot of problems when somebody witnesses the abuse. There's really enormous consequences, including poor mental and physical health, emotional development. Child, young children, adolescents have poor academic achievement. And it can um, a person learns that maybe it's acceptable to have that kind of abusive relationship. And that has long-term implications, especially for teens and adults, uh, if they think it's acceptable because they've seen that in the relationships that they're uh, have, have gone on in their families. You've mentioned some really important warning signs. And, and I think that sort of kids who are in distress, that sleep is often a, a big factor. Um, kind of, I, I remember hearing someone say it was, you know, if the, the tiger's in the room, you can't sleep. And so mm -hmm. that, you know, that may affect like it's not safe to be asleep because I need to be on alert. You know, that may be sort of at, you know, that deepest level of your, you know, caveman back in, the, you know, that we had to be alert and aware, but all these other physical symptoms. And, you know, I remember cases that I had where, you know, kids had presented with all kinds of physical, um, like long-term abdominal pain. They had huge workups and it wasn't until, uh, you know, unfortunately a couple of years later that, uh, you know, this teenager was like able to disclose what had been happening in her home. And, you know, you feel bad that you miss these things. And, you know, so I, I guess there's a couple things and we can talk about them maybe separately because they're probably two heavy areas. And one is how do we ask when we're concerned? And then how do we teach our teenagers who are, you know, getting involved in intimate relationships? How do we teach them what's safe? So maybe let's start with that one. Okay. Um, well, you talked about how to ask, and it's difficult to ask children what's going on when their parent is there. Uh, so that that's a difficult situation, but you might want to ask a parent, you know, express it as we're not finding a reason for the, your children to your child to have upset stomach or headaches but often it's due to stress is there anything going on that is stressful for the child and some people feel like parents might come out and discuss domestic violence more if it concerns their child than themselves because they're worried about the well-being of their child so that's one way to ask about some of the vague um, symptoms um, and then the second part, you were asking about how to ask teens. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, and how do we, you know, as kids are, you know, getting into high school and might be, you know, starting to date to teach them about what are the red flags to look for that, you know, that this isn't acceptable because, you know, kids are, are you know, they're just don't always have that much insight and they want to be liked and loved and, you know, all yeah. the things. Um, and they might... If a teen gets into a relationship where there's violence, if they're dating somebody, they might find that it's acceptable because they have seen that uh, maybe, you know, their their mother abusing their father or uh, a man abusing uh, the other male parent, and they think it's an acceptable way to deal with arguments. Uh, but teens may confuse jealousy and control with love. So it's important to tell teens, you know, to address this and say, maybe 
are you in a relationship and how do you deal with um, with any issues you have if you're arguing with the person you're in a relationship with, but letting them know that a healthy relationship is one that doesn't involve any kind of violence, that it's not acceptable for somebody to say, oh, I hit you because you were talking to that other person and I'm jealous because I love you so much. They, it, you need to make clear that that's a, not a healthy relationship um, and that their partner um, should never feel, make them feel bad about themselves by pointing out shortcomings, for example. So it's difficult because teens want to feel like they're mature and they can make their own decisions. So it's a little bit more difficult for them to come to an adult for help. But again, just telling them, here's a healthy relationship. There shouldn't be control. Nobody should monitor what you're doing day to day. That doesn't mean a person loves you if they want to monitor your cell phone, if they want to tell you what to do, where to go, who your friends should be. Just having a, a discussion about that with teens as part of a regular visit uh, is a good thing so they can hear hear that information with nobody has discussed it with them before. Also having materials about healthy relationships, they're available from many domestic violence sites. Uh, so some are geared towards teens and that's a, a good resource to have and maybe to give to all teens so they don't think they're being singled out by saying relationships are difficult. Uh, we like to share this information with everybody and handing it to them as opposed to just having it in a waiting room. Mm -hmm. um, we should never talk to them about or pressure them to end a relationship, but really discuss what's involved with the relationship. I'm sure you've seen this in your practices where. And it's a hard one when you, you know, kind of what's the fine line between reportable things, you know, a controlling relationship, you know, when you start hearing some of those things and you're like, huh, that doesn't sound like a good thing, <laughs> you know, but I like, right. I like the idea of, you know, like so many things we do with mental health is that this is just universal information. You know, we ask all of our kids about depression. We ask all of our kids about suicidal thoughts. We ask all of our kids if they know about healthy relationships, you know, I guess if it's just sort of kind of routine, normal, but you're right. I don't think that it's something that we have conversations about typically because we're probably not thinking about it. Right. And I think, like you said, doing this routinely by telling teens, we discuss these issues with all of our patients, lets them know that you're open to discussing it, even if they don't want to discuss it the first time they have a visit. Uh, another thing to discuss with teens is just asking about their sexual relationships. So if they say they are having uh, engaging in sex, you can discuss that you're in control of your body. You have the right to say no. Nobody should force you. As you said earlier, teens want to be accepted. Uh, so it might be, oh, now I have a partner and they really just like the feel of that but not, they don't understand what a good relationship is. So opening the door for teens to discuss these things is really, really important. Yeah, I, I, I like what you said about, you know, asking sort of normalizes the asking, the talking about it. And it, it does let them know like, oh, this is a safe place that I can, can talk about that. So that sort of makes me think about, you know, if we if we identify or it comes up in conversation with a mom and I'm going to use mom because that's mostly who we see, but it could be the father. 
you know, again, that I've heard that it's important to meet them where they are and that they might not be ready to leave or to disclose. And so what, what do you offer? I mean, obviously if I was worried about child abuse, then I'm, I have to report that, but if it's a mom and there's no child abuse going on, I I mean, how, how would you start with that? I think always being understanding and sympathetic, telling them that no one deserves to be abused. How can I help you? Recognizing that uh, women, like you said, uh, they all talk about women, but partners often leave four or five times before permanently ending a relationship, but letting them know you're always there for them. So even if they don't acknowledge the domestic violence, they know that you're somebody they can go to providing all patients with educational materials about domestic violence, healthy relationships is important. So maybe not just having it in the waiting room, but to hand it to patients and saying, I give this to all my patients so they know about resources. I was visiting a student and came in through the emergency room and used the restroom there. And there was a sign on the wall and it said, unhealthy relationships can break more than your heart. And they had a picture of a fractured skull on an x-ray, but there were handouts there in the emergency room, small little handouts in the restroom that somebody could take with them. So their partner who might be with them would not see about it. And recently uh, I read about, and I think it's just such a great idea about um, offices that have a sign when with the specimen cups. And it says, please put only your initials on the specimen cup and place it on the back of the shelf or the toilet. And it says, write your initials in red on the specimen cup if you're experiencing intimate partner violence, domestic violence, or anything else you would like to discuss in private. So the health practitioner then knows that there's an issue. Uh, So even if a partner is with them, um, they can ask that partner to leave. And that's a good idea uh, with teens if the parent will give you permission. I remember with my son, the pediatrician said, I'd like to examine them alone. Is that okay? (laughs) And uh, I would just say yes, so my children could do that. So if you can separate the person from other visitors, from family members and other visitors, that's a good tactic to take too. Uh, But always ensuring that you are there for them, you can help them with resources and they should always feel open to, um, to talking with you. That was a really clever idea. You know, you see some of these commercials too, where they show like a, I can't remember what's like a hand signal that, um, mm-hmm. people, you know, for, you know, human trafficking and, yes. um, you know, that there are ways to help people be able to, you know, signify like I'm not safe. Right. I, I have seen that hand signal that signals that I need help. Um, that somebody can do behind their back. It's Mm -hmm. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, we can't do a conversation in this pandemic times without talking about COVID because, you know, it has impacted so many things. And one of the things that we've heard about is that there's been an increase in the occurrences of child abuse and domestic violence and so let's let's talk about times of increased risk, and maybe we'll start with COVID. Yeah, COVID, uh, they were seeing, um, it was pretty much when the pandemic was ending that they were finding out that there was a lot more domestic violence and child abuse. Uh, but during COVID, it was difficult because 
There were virtual visits with healthcare professionals. COVID caused social isolation, and that limited people's access access to friends and families who might have assisted them or seen signs of the abuse, you know, the injuries where somebody's saying, what happened? So there's less chance of um, discussing this with somebody. There was a loss of employment, so there was increased financial strain, um, which is one of the things that are associated with domestic violence and child abuse. And children were at home all day with their parents in confined spaces. I often thought about what I would have done if I had to work from home and my husband had to work from home and I had three children at home who needed help with schoolwork. And maybe you don't have the computer resources or the internet and how stressful all of that would have been. You can't get outdoors to just um, engage with other people. And uh, it, it was just a difficult situation. And there were severe limitations with domestic violence shelters that didn't have staff. Um, they didn't have as much space at, as might have been required. So it had um, COVID had significant implications for domestic violence and child abuse. Yeah, there there were so many things that have you know were were suffered, and and I think we're going to experience the repercussions of that for a while. Um, and and you did mention financial stress can can be a risk not necessarily a risk factor, but it could contribute to, are there some other things that increase the risk of domestic violence? Um, there are many things. Uh, immigrant status is one that we haven't talked about, but if a person is um, an immigrant from a different country and their partner is not, they could say, I'm going to report you to the authorities if you report this abuse. So that's a risk factor. Adolescence is uh, when the the greatest amount of domestic violence occurs between the ages of 16 and 24 uh, is there's the greatest incidence. So that, again, Mm. is just a risk factor. And pregnancy, um, it puts stress on the family because of finances. Um, A woman might be more um, willing to argue with their spouse because they want to protect the baby. So maybe they want to go to health visits that the spouse or the partner is not allowing them to do. And um, there's a great deal of domestic violence when a person is pregnant, uh, which is hard to understand, but it is one of the times that there's an increased risk. That's Um, interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. It makes me think of the play and the movie Waitress, you know, because there was um, a, a domestic violence situation. And when the perpetrator finds out that his wife is pregnant, he's angry because he is afraid that she's going to love the baby more, which I thought was really interesting. I hadn't thought yeah. about that sort of, you know, that that was a threat to him. Yeah, it is interesting that, um, and also not just that they might love the baby more, but a woman might not have the energy to uh, meet all the demands of the spouse, you know, so maybe uh, the, the husband wants the woman to clean more and have more sexual relationships. And the woman is uh, just doesn't have the energy for that, which can make the spouse um, angry. So uh, if the pregnancy is unwanted, um, that's another risk uh, factor too, uh, that they, the person might be abused. Have there been situations, I mean, if you think back to your practice as a physical therapist, where you did ask the question, um, I mean, how, how did that go? Well, um, now I 
deal mostly almost entirely with uh, infants and preschoolers. I wouldn't see an adult to ask a question if they have been um, exposed to abuse. Mm. If I saw a child with injuries that and the uh, description of how they got hurt didn't make sense, I would say, you know, this injury is is puzzling. Um, and I might in, ask a little bit more about how it might have occurred. The problem is that if the like the mother brings the child to the visits and they are responsible for the abuse, they're not going to open up. But I can ask questions about, is there a lot of stress going on in the home? Is anything happened that you want to discuss with me? Just so they know that I'm available. Opening questions like that, just asking questions like can open the door so people know you are uh, knowledgeable about the topic. So I might say, you know, I've, I've ask all my parents about any abusive situations that occur in the home. Have you ever been fearful for yourself or for your child? So that might get them to know that at some point they might want to talk about it if anything has occurred. Is there anything that we shouldn't ask? I mean, of course, I always think about you're not you're not being hurt at home, are you? Or you're safe at home, aren't you? Um, You know, sort of ask and answer, ask and answer. But are there things that we shouldn't ask that you can think of? We should never ask any question that it makes it seem like the victim is the cause of the abuse. We shouldn't say things like, why don't you leave? What did you do to make your partner angry? Uh, Because that puts it on the the victim instead of the perpetrator. Mm. So I would always avoid questions like that. Yeah, I like that. So what happens if they say yes? yes, I am afraid, or yes, there are some things that are happening at home. What's helpful? What what next? What do we do? First, you want to assess for their safety. Do you feel safe at this time? Um, is there anything you would you like me to call the authorities if you don't feel safe at this time? How can I help? Otherwise, it's saying we have resources available. Healthcare professionals should link up with mental health experts, people who are dealing with victims of domestic violence, there should be a link. Uh, So they might, in the office, you might say, I have resources right here. Can I connect you with this person? It might be asking um, a victim or the patient. It's hard to always call them a victim. So it might be that you ask the patient if um, they want to link right away, how you can help. Would you like to use our office phone? Because it might be that their cell phone's being tracked by their partner. Mm. So things like like that, um, even with computers, to tell them to use a computer at a library or a safe place, because if they're looking up information about domestic violence hotlines or shelters, their partner might be able to find that information. So letting them know what resources are available, um, how they might link up with them, and and telling them that you're a resource. While you might not provide the counseling that they need, you can link them with shelters, with people they can talk to and, um, and help in that manner. So here's a question too. Are we obligated to report domestic violence if child abuse is not an issue? So there's no harm to the children that we're aware of, and we don't suspect that, but there is the parent. Are we required to call the police about that? There's uh, most states have included in definitions of child abuse, uh, witnessing intimate partner violence. But most states do not 
have requirements, although 26 do. 26 states in Puerto Rico recognize the need to protect and care for children, and they address in their statutes the issue of children who witness domestic violence in the homes. Uh, there are a few states, and I couldn't name which ones they are, that have uh, tougher uh, penal requirements. But if a person has engaged in uh, intimate partner violence, their um, sentencing will be tougher if children have witnessed that. Oh, okay. Okay. That so, makes sense. Yes. Uh, but there are a lot of states that don't really require reporting. Uh, but like I said, uh, there's a list you can get from any of the uh, domestic violence uh, information sites that tells you which states um, have this in their statutes and just exactly what the statutes are. Yeah, that's good. I mean, honestly, that's the first time I've ever heard that. I, I didn't realize that that was in some places a requirement. So I'll make sure that I look that link up and I'll put it in the show notes along with some other resources. Yeah, so, I'd like to get that link too, because it's really important that people know exactly what the requirements in each state. Yes. There are a few states that do require reporting of domestic violence. I think there are only five. And that's really controversial because the um, people are adults and they have the autonomy to decide if they want to go to the police. So if a healthcare provider reports that somebody has revealed that they've been in a domestic violence situation and the police come knocking at the door and the abuser is standing right there, they're going to deny that it's ever happened and it can make the abuse worse. Right, right. Well, I, I guess just in closing, I mean, there's so many ramifications for this, isn't, isn't there? Um, you know, why does our asking make a difference? I mean, and, and why should that be part of what we do? It, it allows a person to understand that we understand the situation and we're knowledgeable and that this is a common thing. It's not just occurring to them. They're not the only one who's dealing with this. And somehow Sometimes getting into support groups is helpful, even if they don't want to leave, they can find a support group where other people are dealing with it. So they're not, they know they're not alone. They know that um, there are resources and agencies that are available to help them. And it's important that we tell them that when they're ready to discuss this, if, if it happens and they're ready to discuss this, we're there for them. We're there to help them uh, plan a, a course of action that they're comfortable with. If it's either leaving or just looking up resources or talking to people, they know that they're supported and they're not alone. Yeah. And, and I think probably at least for the pediatric clinicians that are listening, important to let them know, you know, I'm so sorry, this is happening to you. This must be so scary. Um, you know, your children witnessing this is it's it's a problem for them and I want to help you help them you know so right. that people are you know they're probably thinking I'm keeping my child safe to the best of my ability but maybe not realizing the impact of just witnessing domestic violence right I absolutely um, knowing that we're there for them makes a real difference and knowing that they're not alone uh, yeah. can really help in this situation. So just asking is the vital part. Um, just letting them know that this is a universal question asked of all the patients, lets them know that you're, you're knowledgeable. And again, the situation occurs to a lot of people. Right. Well, listen, Claudia, thank you so much. Um, I think this is a really important topic and 
I know, you know, as a pediatrician, it feels pretty weighty, all of the the things that we're supposed to, or not necessarily supposed to, but have the opportunity to address in these encounters because, you know, the families trust us and are coming to us and that it, it oftentimes feels overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, this is just one other thing to do, but how important and that it may save a life. Absolutely. Um, it's asking the question. It's not that it has to take a lot of time, just having the resources available for the people uh, that we see in our practices. Well, I certainly appreciate this and um, how fortunate your students were to hear this from you and also to know that, you know, we all have a role to play and to um, keeping people safe and keeping children safe. So thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to, we were able to discuss this really important topic. Boy, this is a really tough topic, isn't it? I, I think just listening makes me think about how much fear can be perpetrated on individuals, particularly women, and witnessed by children and how harmful that can be. And perhaps we have an opportunity to intervene. So here are today's takeaways. Number one, first of all, a huge thank you to Dr. Claudia Fenderson. Number two, all professionals who care for kids have an opportunity to ask about domestic violence and safety. Number three, domestic violence and intimate partner violence is all about control. And Claudia really described the different types of control issues that may happen. And while we think mostly about women being abused by men, we shouldn't make assumptions because who is a victim, perpetrator, or survivor could could vary. I mean, it could be a man, a woman. So we need to be mindful of that. Number four, we often consider physical abuse, but we need to think about emotional abuse, which would include denigration, isolation, and intimidation, sexual abuse, financial abuse, which I really hadn't thought about, but, you know, um, taking away people's assets and resources for seeking help and stalking. And Claudia really outlined that stalking is not harmless because it is such a specter of harm, this perpetual threat. Number five, domestic violence is common with estimates that one third of men and women have been in a domestic violence situation and that 15% of children at least may have witnessed domestic violence. Number six, domestic violence is a public health concern. Witness domestic violence affects children at many levels and is one of the 10 ACEs. Infants and young children may present with sleep and feeding issues, while toddlers and preschoolers may experience separation anxiety or have behavior concerns. Older children may blame themselves for being the cause of the abuse or feel guilty for not protecting the parent victim. Mental health issues and somatic complaints are common, particularly in older uh, kids and teenagers. Number seven, teens who have witnessed domestic violence may believe that violence is an acceptable way to deal with conflict. They may confuse jealousy and controlling behaviors, monitoring behaviors with acts of love. Number eight, and, and this is where I think we can really make an impact. Ask universally about domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Educate all teens about safe relationships and red flags. And when asking about sexual relationships, let them know that it is okay, it is really essential 
that they are able to honor their own bodies and to be able to say no to unwanted advances and that they should never be threatened because of that. Number nine, the COVID pandemic increased the incidence of child abuse and neglect and domestic violence with increased isolation, limited access to help, heightened stress with parents and children both home, and then financial strains that may still continue. Number 10, other risk factors for domestic violence may include immigrant status, where one parent or one of the partners is an immigrant and the other is not, and there is a threat of deportation for reporting, being 16 to 24 years of age, and surprisingly, pregnancy. Um, I I liken this to um, the movie Waitress, which if you haven't seen is wonderful. It's also an excellent play, but it really highlights uh, domestic violence and what can happen during pregnancy. Number 11. So how do we help? Again, ask, is there stress in the home? Have there been times when safety is threatened? Let patients and caregivers know that you are knowledgeable and there to help. The asking is in and of itself therapeutic. That comes from Vince Folletti, who authored the ACEs study, but that asking normalizes that asking about mental health issues, about behavior health issues, about things that are often taboo, that it's okay to talk about this and that it helps relieve some of the shame that people may feel who stay in those relationships. Number 12, it is not helpful to ask, why don't you leave? Or what did you do to provoke the violence? There should never be blame. Number 13, when domestic violence is disclosed, reassure the victim that no one deserves to be abused or threatened. It is important for us to offer resources and help, but understand that the victim may not be able to leave and it may not be safe. In fact, it may heighten the risk as they attempt to leave a a domestic violence situation. Number 14, assess the safety. You can offer the use of your office phone or computer to access help. You can offer to contact authorities, being mindful of the implications of that. Some states mandate reporting domestic violence or witness domestic violence, and I'm including a link in the show notes so you can see where your state falls. Your role with an adult victim is to help them understand that you understand and are there to help. Now, Obviously, if it is someone that is under 18, um, this is really a different situation. And again, we have to be mindful of mandated um, reporting. So if a patient is reporting that they are being abused by a boyfriend, for example, that may need to be reported. Number 15, know the resources in your community. Again, anytime you're going to do a screening project or start asking questions, we need to make sure that we know how to respond appropriately. Who can help in your community? What research do you have in your office? And again, I'm including links that can give you that information. And number 16, most importantly, let the victim know that they are not alone and that you are ready to discuss the situation and to help. These are really difficult Um, situations and scary for everyone involved. But we have to remember that what kids see so greatly impacts them and witness domestic violence is a significant um, adverse childhood event. 
So we need to keep this in mind when we're having to keep in mind all the other things that, you know, we have to ask about and has to be on our radar. As always, I want to thank you for everything you do for children. I know that it is a monumental task, but it is so well worth it to make a difference in the lives of children and families. Thank you, and please join me next week for another episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.